comics, movies, music, video games, technology, Blu-ray, television. This is the HHW LOD Podcast Network. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download at www.audibletrial.com slash outnowpodcast. Over 100,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. That's www.audibletrial.com slash outnowpodcast. Aaron and Abe. I am Aaron, and as always, this is Abe. Aloha. Out now is a film podcast. As Abe and I are discussing new movies weekly, we also bring a discussion about the latest movie trailers, box office results, and predictions. A callback to past films, somewhere to the main film of the week, games, and other fun stuff. Most of that does not matter because this is another bonus episode. <laughs> this is our special <laughs> giant top ten film of the 2013 episode. I think I yeah that works. Apocalypse <laughs> episode. Yeah. Yes. You excited, Abe? Oh, I'm excited. I'm excited. Happy, Happy New Year, by the you way. Can't, you can't really tell my voice, but you, you know, I'm, I'm very excited. Happy New Year. Happy and New Year to, to the all listeners. listeners well. Yes, yeah. We're back. Yeah. We've done it. We uh, went back to 1985. That, yeah. that, <laughs> I watched all three of those movies in the course of this past week, actually. Um, let's, let's get into this here. Okay, joining us to go over their top tens, as well as our top tens. We're going to just have a big top ten off. We have writer for Fast Film Reviews and contributing member of the Online Film Critics Society, it's Mark Hoban. Hi, everyone. We have writer for Senna Maxwell and the Young Folks, as well as a co-host of the Ichapod Crane cast, Maxwell Haddad. Hello, everybody. And writer for Forbes and noted box office pundit, Scott Mendelson. Always a pleasure to be here. I had no time for funny intros, because this is a serious show, guys. This is all about top ten. <laughs> I was like, yeah, it's very straightforward. I, yeah. I know. There will be no jokes. There's no jokes this time around, guys. <laughs> I, can't yeah. I, I can't make that kind of a promise. We'll, we'll see. <laughs> we'll, we'll see how long you stay on this call. <laughs> you don't it to significantly problems. less funny than 12 Years a Slave. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Right. This is this, this should be fun, though. This is always one of my favorite episodes to do each year, and we certainly had quite the year of movies to go through so yeah we're gonna pretty much just dive into it but let's get to a some announcement you know before that i have to say mark hoban was begging me to do paranormal activity the marked ones for the first episode of the year he was just <laughs> he sent me a he sent me a they sent me that's like wow multiple i remember that conversation tons of texts he was like aaron we gotta talk paranormal activity the marked ones unfortunately we're gonna have to do the top 10 episode instead so yeah that's that's that that said, I liked Paranormal Activity, the Mark Twain's, but that's a different I, I some, It's the best film of 2014, this. right? Currently is the best film of 2014. And it had the biggest opening weekend of the year. <laughs> yes. Which I so wanted to put wow. in my headline. <laughs> anyway. These jokes are going to be stricken from the record. There are no jokes this episode. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all this is edited out. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, so yeah, here we go. We're gonna let's let some announcement stuff. Not much here. Um, we did get a few um few submissions from listeners and some friends of the show for their top ten. So I'm gonna kind of plug those in as we go along here as well. And give some shout outs where shout outs are due. 
Um, but besides that, uh, iTunes reviews and ratings, good to get those. It's a brand new year. You can listen to a brand new podcast like this one. If you tell your friends about it, they can do it too. So, yeah, iTunes reviews and ratings helps the show out, helps people find our show. Easy to do. Just log into iTunes. Give us a star rating. Maybe write something. It helps everybody out. So I think that's it. Let's do this. God, I don't even know the order to do this in. Um, <laughs> the format is going to be ridiculous. Yeah. I know. There's so many of us. Let's, let, let's start, let's start with Scott since he, let's go, let's go, let's go backwards. How about that? We'll go, uh-huh. go back. We'll go backwards. Name chronology. Indeed, I didn't, say, I didn't say that right at all. But anyway, Scott, I know you did. So all of I, I assume all of us have a top ten list. Scott, I know you did. You ran, You put yours in alphabetical order, followed by like a number one grandiose film of the year. Correct. Correct. Okay. Um, so if that's a, let's uh, just we're gonna go. The rest of us will go kind of down in numerical order, and Scott, we'll just like you'll just go kind of in your alphabetical order till we get to like the number one spot. So. Yes. With that in mind, what is the top of your list of top ten films of the year? Well, coming in at number B uh, is my guilty pleasure of the year, Beautiful Creatures. This one came out the same week, uh, Valentine's Day weekend 2013, uh, same weekend as A Good Day to Die Hard, which this was better. No, it it may be a ripoff of Twilight. You know, it's basically, it's a superpowered girl and the normal boy who falls for her, and it's witches instead of vampires, but it's really, really good. It's very funny. It's very well-written. It's very smart. It's filled with really good actors like Jeremy Irons that are just chewing through the scenery with gusto. The two kids, who I should have looked up before the show started, uh, are terrific. They have wonderful chemistry together, and I'm stalling as my IMDb thing comes up so I can tell you their names. <laughs> Alice Engelhart is terrific. And Alden uh, Ehrenrich. Yes, who is wonderfully charming and charismatic. He looked and, you know, both in looks and in charisma, reminds me of a, you know, traf- uh, very young Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, it's interesting that they actually do discuss Titanic in the film in a very funny fashion, and he really does feel like that kind of character. Um, the film goes off a little bit in its third act, just for nar- purely for narrative reasons, but it's so much fun. It has wonderful dialogue. It's the kind of film that is as good as we wanted Twilight to be. Um, and its own, I would argue that it, it almost ennobles that genre because it is so much fun, because it is so genuinely romantic. And most of you probably haven't seen it. Uh, do yourself a favor and rent it. It needs the money. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll support Scott in that claim. I did like I saw it with him actually. I like Beautiful Creatures quite a bit. Um, it was it was a lot it was a lot of fun, which is kind of what I was hoping for. And I kind of filed in there with uh, with like Warm Bodies, another film like that, where it's just kind of like a, it's uh-huh. a it's kind of a supernatural romance movie that had enough spark to it to make me enjoy it far more than maybe it thought maybe people thought it would have. So yeah. Unfortunately, a bomb though, right, Scott? So, oh yeah, probably not going to see. Uh... It made sixty million dollars worldwide on a sixty million dollar budget, uh, and it's one of those films that that I don't know how Warner Brothers could have marketed it differently because it marketed it as a Twilight clone, and that's the audience they were going for. But it also really failed to sell what the movie was actually about, and it failed to sell how it separated itself from that type of film, mostly through its its sense of humor and its genuine, you know, the the sheer fun of its adult characters um if it just played like monologues of jeremy irons i I think more people would have showed up just in a heartbeat absolutely (laughs) a jeremy irons first scene in the film is just absolutely hysterical okay 
in a way that doesn't, you know, it doesn't take you out of the film at all. It's just a wonderfully campy, scenery-chewing introduction. It's just great. All right. I hope this is one of the only top ten shows you hear where you hear re- heaps of praise being put to beautiful creatures before you hear any other film mentioned from 2013. <laughs> Moving on, let's go to Maxwell. Maxwell, what is your number ten film of 2013? Okay. My selection for number ten film of the year is Edgar Wright's The World's End. Good evening, Raymondo. The prodigal son's return. Hi. Who's on the guest list tonight? Come again. The guest Aos. We, sir, are doing the Golden Mile, and you have the honor of drawing first blood. What do you recommend? There's one. It's crowning glory. Rather fitting. How's that? I'm Gary King. What? So tell me more. About what? Crowning glory. Is it nutty? Is it foamy? Is it hoppy? Does it have a surprisingly fruity note which lingers on the tongue? Mm, spear. Mmm. We'll have five of those, please. No, sorry. Can we have four of those and attack water, please? What? Um, sort of building on the work he did previously with Simon Pegg and Nick Frost in Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz. The World's End simultaneously exists as like a really clever um, and Britishly witty, uh, you know, lampoon of the science fiction genre while also existing as, and this is why I really loved it, sort of a thoughtful and almost, uh, you know, heartbreaking examination of uh, middle-aged male friendship and our desire or need to hold on to those childhood moments that sort of formed who we are today while struggling with, you know, uh, the responsibility that we need to have. I thought the performances were great and the fight scenes were perhaps my favorite of the year. I really loved it. Yeah, that's a good one. Let's move on to Mark then. Mark, what is your number 10 film of the year? So my number 10 pick is Spring Breakers. And this is one of probably the there's a few titles of 2013 that were probably the most polarizing films among critics, and this is definitely one of them. But I really like the way that it kind of overturns your expectations, and it kind of starts with the Girls Gone Wild template, and it totally turns it on its ear and ends up becoming more of a biting comment on pleasure seekers in Florida um, and sort of a cautionary warning to like the youth of today. And I just thought it was really extremely good. It also highlights a really phenomenal performance by James Franco, who I think has probably, in my opinion, never been better. Um, I, I thought he was just extraordinary in this. And there's just there's several scenes in this film that it it pushes the boundaries where you think, wow, they're really, you know, are they going to go this there? They're going, and then they take it there, and it it's really kind of a I was really kind of you know got really into the film and. It's, it's something, actually, I didn't realize it would end up being in my top ten until the end of the year. But as I was kind of looking at over all the films I saw, it was something that I kept coming back to. So, yeah, that's my number ten pick. I agree with that last point. It is a film that stuck in my mind for a good majority of the year. And I'll just say that for now. Abe, what is your number ten film of the year? Number ten film of the year comes in with Wolf of Wall Street. It's a very fun romp. Uh, not one of Scorsese's best, but it certainly lived up to a lot of the hype surrounding it, and the performance of Leonardo DiCaprio is very good. Also, some of the supporting characters, the main crew of his cohort, uh, including all the side guys, they're very good as well. But I just had a really good time with this movie overall in the theater. I just This is genuinely one of those moments where I, la- I laugh so hard that, uh, you know, I'm just knee-slapping. But it's a very fun romp, and it's are very much R-rated, so don't take your kids to go see it, like some people did. 
Were you in fact slapping your knee during the film? Yeah, there, there was a few parts with the quaaludes that I was just, yeah, I was <laughs> like, like, oh my goodness. You get those knees <laughs> out, start slapping them. <laughs> yeah. Just, I wanted to go up and down the road, just slapping everyone's knees. I was like, yes, everyone do quaaludes. <laughs> All right. Uh, <laughs> uh, my number 10 film is Nebraska, a film from Alexander Payne, oh. uh, starring Bruce Stern and um, <clears throat> Will Forte. Um, I really like this movie. I ended up liking this movie more than I thought I did when I initially saw it. I certainly gave it a strong rating when I initially reviewed it, but I kept thinking about it. And I'd like to think that some of it comes down to the fact that I saw it with my dad, and it feels like it actually works as kind of a father-son loop, like an effective father-son movie to go and see. But it also, it's just a good movie. I think the performances are very strong. I think Bruce Stern, as the as the film goes along, you kind of see why it is that he's been getting the acclaim that he's been receiving for this film. And I, I really tapped into that as this film moved along. But I think the supporting performances are just as well executed. Um, I think June Squibbs obviously stands out because her, her character as the wife of Bruce Stern. She, <laughs> she's hilarious. She's hilarious, and she certainly has a, a really lively role to play as the film carries on but you kind of get to understand who she is as well like there's a lot of there's a the film just evolves really well in showing you who these characters are beyond just being a comedy and, be, and it's really comedy is like a it's a strong word to say about this movie it's it's very much a light drama it's a sad comedy and i was just i really enjoyed it i think the the black and white photography in the film is it's a really wonderful choice and i think it fits with what the film's trying to do but it also just makes the film look pretty fantastic and there's a lot of just great close-ups in this film. That's something that really stuck with, stuck with me as well. There's a lot of close-ups on faces, and they really kind of indicate things to you, informing you even more about the character just by looks and not necessarily through dialogues. So, yeah, Nebraska is a movie that stuck with me enough where it, cra- it was one of my one of the last one of the last changes I made to my top ten as it just broke in all of a sudden. All right, so let's move back down the row back to Scott. What is the next in your top in your your list? Well, just to add some slight more suspense, I actually have made an arbitrary ranking of this stuff, so we're no longer going to be in alphabetical order. Okay. Uh, my next pick is The Hunt, a foreign language film that came out midsummer, or at least I saw it midsummer. I'm sure it played at festivals earlier in the year. It stars Mad Mik- Mads Mikkelsen, uh, everyone every kid's favorite actor, um, as a school teacher. <laughs> in a small town that's accused of uh, child molestation, sexually assaulting one of his students. And what I loved about it is, you know, it's a story that we've, we've seen, <clears throat> unfortunately, fiction and nonfiction countless times, especially in the 80s. But what works about the film is that the director, Thomas Vinterberg, um, he doesn't really amp up the melodrama. You know, the, the, obviously there are heated scenes in this film, but... Rather than, than doing a tawdry look at the horror that this unfair accusation is wrought upon this man type story, he basically tells a story at a very even keel, basically turning the camera on the audience saying, yes, you know this is insane, but would you be any more level-headed if this happened to you? Uh, it's a very effective drama. I, I heartily recommend it. Let's move up to Maxwell. Maxwell, what is your number nine film? Uh, my number nine film of the year is Francis Ha, uh, a wonderful collaboration between the great uh, filmmaker Noah Baumbach and his um, this actress Greta Gerwig, who I like to think uh, has become something of his muse. Um, like Nebraska, the film has uh, really rich, delicate black and white photography, um, and beyond just the fact that I, you know, 
laughed pretty heartily throughout it. Not like um, belly laughter, but more like, you know, acknowledging how witty it was. I found myself, for better or worse, really relating to the character of Frances um, and her her plight uh, in New York City and trying to find um, herself as an adult. Um, I think uh, Greta Gerwig gives one of my favorite female performances of the year. Um, and I, I like, you know, I've liked Noah Baumbach for a long time, and I think this is one of his best films uh, in, in a long time. I think Greta Gerwig is a good influence on Noah Baumbach. I agree with that statement. I, what I liked about Francis Sao, Francis Sao, which I like quite a bit, it didn't make my top ten or my honorable mentions, but I still liked it a lot. What I really liked is that it didn't feel like a... It wasn't mean in the same way that a lot of Noah Baumbach films tend to be, and sometimes that works to the film's advantage, but something like Margot at the Wedding, I really disliked because of how mean it was, and Francis Ha felt like such a nice breath of fresh air for a Noah Baumbach film. Yeah, I agree. It was the most I had liked one of his films since Kicking and Screaming, which was, I think, almost... That's like 95, 20, yeah. 20 years ago, and, uh, you know, thinking about it, they do have a lot of thematic uh, sensibilities, and at least the age of the characters they deal with. As he got older, he dealt with older characters and the Squid and the Whale and Margaret at the Wedding, and this was kind of a return to... Um, the younger characters, and maybe that works well for him. Let's go back to Mark. Mark, what is your number nine? Uh, that would be The Past, and this is Iranian director Asghar Farhadi's follow-up to A Separation, and he is fast becoming one of my favorite directors. He has this knack for just extracting passion and drama just from the most simplest concepts of our everyday lives, and he constructs this fascinating tale from a, a very simple scenario um, just with domestic problems and then slowly as the layers unfold you start to kind of see developments as they're revealed and you're drawn deeper into this crumbling relationship and like a separation you will find yourself siding with different characters throughout the entire film and nobody is a villain everybody is a human being and you see what you know the place that they're coming from and it's extraordinary and Berenice Bejo is it's it's nice to actually get to hear her talk she's she's extraordinary in this film and and actually <laughs> I I think really the whole cast is is uh, quite quite good so um uh the I forget his name but he was in a prophet oh yeah um Ali Mustafa I think no no that's the other guy um ugh, I can't remember now Oh, Tahar Rahim yes. is, is the gentleman that was in uh, A Prophet. But anyway, the, the three of them kind of – there's other people in the film, but the three of them are kind of like this triad of actors that have this uh, this development that we see unfold, and it, it's extraordinary. I saw this really at the end of the year, but right before I compiled my top ten list, and I'm glad I did because it uh, it easily is – you know it belongs there. Yeah, everything you just said I agree with. I, I, was, I managed to squeak in the past. I did not – I just didn't have time to factor it into my top ten at that point, but I was really very satisfied with it. And between this and a separation, I, uh, Asghar Farhadi is apparently the best person at making very simple dramas being incredibly effective. So. Yeah. And about Berenice Bejo, it's really interesting because in the trailer, there's just one cut where they say, Berenice Bejo is great, and they just fill up the entire screen with accolades for her. So... I guess she did a pretty good job. Veronese Bayo being the actress from The Artist, for those who can't 
quite recall what we're talking about. Right, that's why I said yeah. it was nice to hear speak. <laughs> yes, yeah. Uh, probably should have yeah. explained that. <laughs> I chuckled. <laughs> Abe, what is your number nine? Coming in number nine is The Spectacular Now. I really like this movie. I enjoyed it a lot. The writing is solid. The acting is solid. Um, in terms of how teenagers speak and whatnot, I still give that to Superbad, but it's it's very much so the mentality of, of folks coming up uh, in their own, so to speak, of, uh, you know, your world is this high school realm, and you own it, and you're the man, but people have to grow up. They have to move on, and um, it's kind of a devastating look at, at all, honestly, it's a devastating look at, at uh, uh, alcoholism, but they don't really address that as much in the film as I probably would have liked. Um, yeah, I, I enjoyed it a lot, and it gave me a lot to think about in terms of relationships, too. And I remember uh, after leaving the theater, I just uh, I drove around for a little bit just thinking about past relationships, and it was kind of a, it was kind of it had this nice little effect on me. So, yeah, good on them. In front of the show, Coach Taylor was in there as well. He is there, yeah. Coach Taylor. Not Tammy, though. Head coach. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I quite like the spectacular now as a big fan of that film. All right, my number nine is also The Hunt. Scott pretty much said everything that I have to say about The Hunt, but I do think it's a very, very strong drama. I've been supporting it for a better part of the year since I saw it way back in April, and I kept wanting to praise The Hunt every time it was it kind of came up in a conversation. I think Matt Nicholson, who I generally know as a villain in things, like I never really see him play kind of hero guy, heroic guy, but um, it was great to see him as this this person is just caught in this horrible situation where it's just his, his name is being dragged to the mud based on things that he has not done. And it makes you really angry just to watch these things play out and like know that what's happening is not correct. And like some explanations, some simple explanations can clear everything up, but it just doesn't transpire that way. And it's just a very strong movie. I really like the hunt. Aaron, did you see a Royal affair? I still have not seen a Royal affair. I think oh, it's okay. like, so he, it's he's a, a good guy in that. Okay, good and it's, to know. And it's a good movie, too. It's like, I'm pretty sure it's in like one of the yeah. top five on my Netflix queue or whatever, so. <laughs> it, was what, it was my pick for foreign picture last year that, that I knowingly lost. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping Matt Mickelson will return to my top ten list in 2015 as he's playing the villain in Kung Fu Panda 3. <laughs> um, if that doesn't end up in my top ten, ah, I would be very would sad. Be yes. Maybe. I'll be very sad if that doesn't uh, yeah. end up there. Well, if Bond 23, the return of they return totally of Lashif. The, <laughs> um, the return of Lashif, Bond 23. I can't wait. No, for, for, what it's, for people that don't know, I'm not kidding. Kung Fu Panda 2 is my favorite film in 2011. Um, but anyway. Oh, wait, it's my turn. He's great on Hannibal, by the way, too. We yes, he is. Because he's so good he, on that show. He's terrific. I, I love that he's having this really great career. There's something about his, you know, just the way he looks that's so captivating. Have you seen the uh, the Pusher films, Maxwell? Yeah. There's the films of uh, Nick, Nicholas Winding Revan. Yeah. yeah, and Valhalla Rising as yeah, well. Yeah, Valhalla Rising. All right, Scott, let's go to you. Your number eight film. Uh, number eight would be my favorite documentary of the year, Sarah Polly's Stories We Tell. Um, I don't want to, you know, it's kind of hard to say too much about this film without giving away its, you know, its narrative thrust. But basically, it's a film of Sarah Pauly trying, basically digging for details about her family history and perhaps coming upon more than she expected to find. And plot wise, I say no more than that. What I loved about it is, aside from the, the, the emotional oomph of, of the narrative itself, what I love about the film is it really kind of plays around with the idea of, what a documentary really is in terms of, you know, 
frankly, you know, reenactments, actual nonfiction video footage, and speculative history and what have you. And again, I don't want to say more than that because the film actually has quite a few surprises, but it just reaffirms that, pre- that after Take This Waltz and Away From Her, Sarah Polly is one of, if not explicitly, my favorite working director today. And this is another dynamite film of hers. I can't wait to see what she does next. And do not watch the trailer, because you're right. There are secrets that are better not to know, and the trailer reveals everything. I mean, I was shocked. at Like, I watched it after I saw the documentary, and it, it gives away everything. I saw the like, – I happened to – because I saw it in theater. I saw the trailer for it in theaters with other movies a couple times. And I, I eventually, when I saw the film, I wasn't dissatisfied by the fact that I knew certain things going in by the trailer. I th- thought it was just as affecting. Or I don't not. think it ruins the movie, but it definitely gives away. Fair enough. Yeah, I would, that I would surprised. I agree. Uh, yeah, I agree that it had, if I were to have not seen the trailer, I guess it would have been preferable. But I can't say um, that my experience was necessarily ruined from it. I did see the again, like you. I saw it. You know, it seems you know at the landmark seeing something else someday. And yeah, it does give away a certain I think second act reveal, but it still works even if you know somewhat where it's going. There are definitely things about it that our need to understand once seeing the film that yes. really make it effective. But yeah, it is a very, very good documentary. It's certainly one. I didn't catch a ton of documentaries this year, but it certainly probably would be my favorite documentary actually by default, even though I haven't, I've have not seen the act of killing yet, though, but we'll see. I have not either. Let's move to Maxwell. What is your number eight film? All right. My number eight film of the year is Frozen. Hi, everyone. I'm Olaf, and I like warm hugs. Olaf? That's right, Olaf. And you are? Uh, um, I'm Anna. And who's the funky-looking donkey over there? That's Sven. Uh-huh. And who's the reindeer? Sven. Oh, they're, oh, okay. Make things easier for me. <laughs> oh, look at him trying to kiss my nose. I like you too. Olaf, did Elsa build you? Yeah, why? Do you know where she is? Yeah, why? Do you think you could show us the way? Yeah, why? How does this work? Ow! Stop it, Sven. Trying to focus here. Yeah, why? I'll tell you why. We need Elsa to bring back Summer. Summer? Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't know why, but I've always loved the idea of summer and sun and all things hot. Really? I'm guessing you don't have much experience with heat. Nope! Um, I saw this movie four times, I am not ashamed to admit, and I, and more so than any other movie I saw this year, it just brought me pure joy. Um, the songs by the Lopez's are infectious and terrific, the, the, the female characters are, you know, they have great personality and they're strong, independent women, and I love the story of Sisterly Bond, and I also think there's a really fascinating... Um, queer reading uh, up to the film, in particularly as it relates to the Elsa character, that I think sets it even further apart from the the Disney pack of late. Not that I didn't enjoy um, Tangled and The Princess and the Frog, but this to me was just a, a home run for the studio. Um, and like I said, it was perhaps the most fun I had in a theater all year. Very enjoyable film. Uh, what I like most about it is the fact that I can remember the songs, which has not been the case in a lot of more recent Disney films. So that 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 strikes me as a film that that uh you know had a, had a great effect on me. Can we say our predictions for best original song? Yes, for Mark. Academy, for Academy Awards, Let It Go. I mean, yeah, nomination and win. And if 
that's not. I mean, I'm sure there'll be like five great choices, but that's that would be my pick. It's surprising <laughs> how good that so- like every song, like every song I think that's in contention right now is a song that I've heard this year for a change, and I really like all of them. And yeah. so it's like that's that's something that doesn't normally happen. It's usually like it feels like there's one that's like probably gonna win, another one that's pretty good, and then like random ones from some like random documentary by some artist that you didn't know existed until it got nominated. <laughs> But I've seen the short list, and there are certain things that didn't make the short list, so I sort of have an idea of what I think will will make it. And yeah. So the, the irony is, at least for me, I I think How to Build a Snowman is actually the best song in the film, but it's just so painfully sad on a dozen different levels that it's not the one you're going to put on your you know iTunes loop. Well, yeah, compared to the power ballad that is yeah. letting yeah, exactly. go, that's like it's such a. It makes me makes me want to. Yeah, let's do yeah. this. Makes me actually get. And going. also, do you want to build a snowman? I mean, they're singing that for like twelve years, so that's a yes. super long song. <laughs> 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 All right, uh, Mark, what is your number eight film? My number eight is The Hunger Games: Catching Fire, and this is probably, I mean, among really big boffo box office hits this year, this was my favorite, and I think, well. I read the book, and you've heard the adage, show, don't tell. I think this film is a perfect example of how director Francis Lawrence invigorates the words of Suzanne Collins' novel into this fully realized picture that really exploits the visual medium. And it was like one of those cases where I saw the film and say, oh my gosh, this is even better than what I read. And Jennifer Lawrence is extraordinary. I'm going to be mentioning, I'm going to, spoiler, I'm going to be talking about her a little bit later in my list. And she's incredible. She takes this role, which in the hands of most actresses, I think would just be kind of like, oh, here, this is an action pick, and, you know, she's the the heroine. But she treats it almost like a biographical drama, and it almost has the feeling of, like, this is real life in her hands. And these scenes where she's standing at the victory tour, and she's looking out at the faces staring back at her, and the the heartbreak in her face and it's just so real and I don't expect to see that in a sort of popcorn film like this and and she she made it like and to be honest this film has like 10 performances in it that I I could cite as extraordinary so that also was a reason why this is my number eight pick. I love that you, I really love that you have this film. You know, it just missed my list, um, which just goes to show how strong I thought this year was. But as a fan of the novels, I, I think it is a rare case where, in many ways, the film adaptation improves on the book. And a lot of that has to do with both the performances. And I also think Francis Lawrence did a terrific job of, you know, working in what um, was established with the first film, but really strengthening everything and, and bringing this this really uh, terrific tone to it. So I'm happy to, to see you have that on your list. Well, thank you. It's nice to see Francis Lawrence finally kind of coming into his own as, as a successful director, not just one that made, like... Because he, well, he made I Am Legend, which made its money, and, like, it's fine. It just kind of falls apart at the end, I think. And, and what was the other... Or Constantine was the one before that, which... That's I, Constantine. I it just goes to show that, you know, you can be a strong director, but if you don't have good material, there's only so much you can do. Yeah, I agree, because I always think he's been a good visual storyteller. It's just he hasn't had the bit like, what's the other Water for Elephants? Abe and I's fourth episode, maybe? Yeah, it's like number eight or, yeah, I don't know. One of those. Early. Like, and, yeah, it's just, I, I think he, he knows how to how to film something. He knows how to make something look good. But yeah, it, it does come with the, the material you're given as well. And I think it has paid off quite well with the second Hunger Games and hopefully the third. Is he doing both, the other two? I believe yep. so, yes. Yeah, he is, yeah. Um, 
No, I, I've been a fan of his. You know, I like I, I I like all of his films. I think they're all good, solid, well, you know, mostly well written, intelligent popcorn entertainment. Uh, I like Water for Elephants. I like Constantine. Even the ending of I Am Legend. Yes, it's compromised. It's no secret. But I do find it funny that we're all talking about the cop out ending where the hero dies. It, um, <laughs> I mean, it, it falls about sooner for that than me. Yeah, it? yeah. <laughs> Abe, <laughs> what is your number eight film, Abe? Number eight is The Place Beyond the Pines. Not only is this an effective trailer, probably because of the haunting music, but the movie is really solid. Uh, the only part that Aaron and I have discussed this in the past, the only part that really bugged me a lot was uh, how one of the sons grows up and what a douchebag he is. Uh, other than that, it's really good, really solid. I think that it's really extraordinary that they actually take it through these three specific uh are three specific uh, phases of the of the film and also of their of these folks' lives and even Evan Mendez gives a pretty good solid performance um, but it's it's very devastating as well yeah place beyond the pines it's definitely something that folks should check out in the three hours it does breeze by pretty pretty quickly it's like two and a half hours it's, yeah, it's about two twenty yeah yeah it's long that's for sure but I I I really like the film it's fun it's funny the degree of your words suggested to me that you like this and the spectacular now less than then apparently is true since they're both on your top 10 list for the year it's been a weird year uh, okay <laughs> oh me um my uh, my uh, number eight film is in a world <laughs> from uh, writer director lake bell her debut um this is a film a little film that really caught me by surprise at how much i enjoyed it i went in knowing what the plot was and like liking a lot of the, the actors involved there's lake bell there's ken marino there's uh well there's a lot of people in here um with Nick, with Nick Offerman pops up in there uh Rob Cord Rob Cordry pops in there there's just a lot of like kind of uh, comedic actors that uh, aren't like headlining films so they're kind of play supporting roles and they all get like a they all get their own little arc in this film and it's it was just something I really responded to I'm not necessarily really sure why it's just it was really fun to me it all clicked together I it's it, well, I should probably describe it a little bit because it's such a small film it's the story of this kind of um, Lake Bell plays a, a voiceover artist who kind of gets her gets a break and she starts to become more and more popular and it gets into this kind of rivalry with other voiceover artists including her own father and it's just it has enough kind of insidery jokes to it it has a, just a lot it has a nice little romantic subplot involving uh, Dimitri Martin and it overall just really worked 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 itself over on me. I, I just really enjoyed in a world and wanted to kind of spread the word more and more about it throughout the uh, like kind of late summer when I saw it. So it, yeah, it stuck with me enough, and I put it on my top ten list. Yeah, it's a it's a good choice. Um, Fred Melamed, who plays her father, yeah, her father. He's he's re- he's just a national treasure. He's so funny, and and something you didn't talk about that I appreciated about the movie was sort of the the maybe not subtle but effective satire of the way Hollywood treats women um which you know is a really potent piece of the movie that i think makes it work well for sure kind of comes with the kind of the insidery nature of the story it yeah it it does it does a good job of you know it's it's a it's a neat little comedy it wraps itself up as well as it does but it it does have other things going on in there that i enjoyed and i i i like seeing what lake bell was able to bring to the filmmaking world and not just being a a good actress but also apparently a good filmmaker so i'm excited to see what else she might be able to kind of pull out in the future. Um, I, I missed this one in theaters, and I was very angry at myself for doing so. Um, I feel like I probably will enjoy it quite a bit in two weeks when it finally comes out on Blu-ray. And my next pick, uh, Inside Lewin Davis, uh, the Coen Brothers uh, period piece. Uh, I guess it's a comedy. I, I didn't laugh much, even though I can, you know, it's, it's a very poignant, moving 
character study. It's it's about a folk singer who is trying to make it big as a solo artist following the death of his partner. You know, they were a, a, a somewhat successful folk singing duo. Uh, his partner killed himself, basically, and he is struggling to make a go of it, not really realizing that his moment in the, you know, his moment has passed. And Oscar Isaac is terrific in the picture. I mean, everybody in it is terrific. Uh, Carrie Mulligan is great, too. Uh, just, Justin Timberlake is very funny and a you know, glorified cameo. Um, but Oscar Isaac is wonderful. The songs are great. And it's a really powerful and and arguably profound look at, you know, for artistic people, sort of that line between, you know, at what point do you say this isn't going to happen and give up and go take the day job or go do whatever plan B was? Because, you know, for any number of artists that are talented enough to theoretically make it, you always seem like one big break away from getting everything you want. So at what point do you say, okay, I'm close, but I'm still going to walk away? Um, a film critic for The Dissolve, Matt Singer, wrote a wonderful piece uh, after I had written my review, but he I, uh, theorized that the film also works as a study of the Coen brothers sort of dealing with the idea of what their, you know, respectively, their artistic careers might have been like without each other. And that was one of those, gosh, hmm. I, wish, I wish I had thought of it insights. Hmm. Um, Interesting. But either way, it's arguably their most empathetic film. I think, fair or not, they get a reputation for being somewhat cold and indifferent toward their characters. Even though, you know, Mr. Davis is basically, you know, I'm always mispronouncing this word, misanthrope? Misanthrope. misanthrope. Thank you, misanthrope. Misanthrope. You know, he, you know, the film still gives him a certain amount of empathy, and thus he has our empathy as well. It's, it's, it's a very moving story, and I was surprised at how affected I was and how much I was thinking about it afterwards. Great. All right. Um, before we get to Maxwell's number seven, I'm going to read a couple um, couple listener and uh, guest responses here. I'll start off with a friend of the show, Adam Gentry. Been on many times before and will soon be on again. Um, just read his here. His number one movie of the year was Before Midnight. Um, and by alphabetical order, the others he has are Blue Jasmine, Gravity, Monsters University, with honorable mentions for Short Term 12, and Big Words. Big Words, I believe, is the film that he was supporting during the, his time at, uh, at Slam, the Slam Dance Film Festival this past year. And Yeah, but uh, yeah, Adam, thank you for those. Uh, Izzy has some of his picks. Place Beyond the Pines, Rush, Fruitvale Station, and The Hunt. And lastly for now, I'll read Jimmy O's. Uh, Jimmy had his number five was Frozen, number four, American Hustle, number three, Gravity, number two, Lou and da- Inside Lewin Davis, and number one, Her. So, yeah, thank you, guys. We'll read more of those as we go along. But, uh, okay, now, Maxwell, what is your number seven pick? Okay, my uh, my number seven pick for 2013 is Gravity. Um, I'll keep this short because I have a sneaking suspicion this will be talked about by others, but, you know... The, I don't think there's anything more to say about the gorgeous technical accomplishment of this movie. It's a true, stunning theatrical experience. And I also found it a very powerful, emotional journey about the, you know, sort of rebirth of the human soul. Sandra Bullock gives the the performance of her career and uh, just kind of, you know, knocked me out. It was stunning. Great. Uh, Mark, what's your number seven film? Uh, that would be Her by Spike Jones. I even made a new friend. I have a friend. <laughs> and the absurd thing is she's actually an operating system. Charles left her behind, but she's, she's, she's totally amazing. You know, she's so smart. She doesn't just see things in, in black or white. She sees this 
whole gray area and she's helping me explore it and we just bonded really quickly. I'm weird. That's weird, right? That I'm bonding with an OS. No, it's okay. It's weird. <laughs> well, I don't think so. Actually, the woman that I've been seeing, Samantha, I didn't tell you, but she, she's an OS. You're dating an OS? What is that like? It's great, actually. Yeah. I feel really close to her. Like, when I talk to her, I feel like she's with me. Are you falling in love with her? Does that make me a freak? No, no, I think it's... I think anybody who falls in love is a freak. It's a crazy thing to do. It's kind of like a form of socially acceptable insanity. <laughs> this movie... I mean, it's kind of hard to say what would be the best written film of the year, but it's definitely up there. Um, I think... You know, Spike Jones uh, usually works with Charlie Kaufman, or, or he has worked with him, and the partnership always has yielded great results. Here's an example where he has written the film on his own. I think, or I think he's maybe uh, with with uh, a, no, yeah, he's no, written by himself, by, yeah. by himself, and it's extraordinary. And I think what I like about it is the concept sounds like a science fiction film. But when you watch it, it's actually the most deeply felt romance of 2013. And when you watch the film, you can see how extraordinary that would be because it's essentially just a voice that he falls in love with. And, and it is. It's all just talking. And the film doesn't – the set pieces are very simple. I mean, it's lots of rooms and, and it's actually kind of really uh, shot in a very interesting way, um, especially with the color palette and everything. But – it's a very sort of seemingly simple movie, but then it's really complex. And this is definitely one of those films that after you see it, you find yourself thinking about it a lot. Um, and I, I think it was actually quite profound. And, uh, you know, so that's why it's my, my number seven. Okay, let's move on to Abe. Abe, what is your number seven film? Number seven for this year is also Inside Lewin Davis. And uh, basically piggybacking off of everything that Scott said, I, I myself laughed at some very awkward moments, and I found to be the only one in the theater laughing at those awkward moments. But, um, yeah, I guess it's categorized as a film or a comedy slash musical in the Golden Globes. Uh, <laughs> but anyhow, uh, I, I did enjoy the performances as well. Uh, the cat thing really throws me off still a lot, and I've asked some folks about it. Um, including folks on this show, um, but the music is really good, and also it's just it's a, it's a weird story. It's it's sad because you feel bad for this character, but at the same time he's not really he's so hip that he doesn't really want to do anything else. He don't want he just doesn't want to exist as he puts it to his sister. Um, and I, I like the the sense of uh, quote unquote realism of the, the film in terms of how he travels to Chicago, he plays for this executive, and then the news that the executive gives him right afterward is just probably not what you were expecting, but it, it's very much the, his life summed up in in a brief statement. So, very good. And the music is excellent, too. Alrighty. Uh, my number seven film is... It's, it's, a, it's a tie. So I, I had to cheat it a little bit because I just couldn't figure out a way to make what? my top ten work. Um, it is The Wolf of Wall Street and Spring Breakers. Mr. Hunter, what can I bring for you on this glorious afternoon? Well, Hector, here's the game plan. You're going to bring us two absolute martinis. You know how I like them, straight up. And then precisely seven and one half minutes after that, you're going to bring us two more. Then 
two more after that every five minutes until one of us passes out. <laughs> Excellent strategy, sir. Uh, I'm, I'm good with water for now, though. Thank you. It's his first day on Wall Street. Give him time. I had to combine these films because it just it made a lot of sense to me. I couldn't I couldn't I couldn't leave either of them off, so I just put them together, and it works. Both films, I think, are doing something that a good number of kind of big releases this year, just releases in general, kind of all tied into where it's this kind of look at a way to achieve some type, some form of the American dream in some capacity. Um, Wolf of Wall Street and Spring Breakers for sure, but then you have films like Pain and Gain, uh, The Bling Ring. Uh, American Hustle, yeah. like a lot of these films like this that all have somewhat of a similar theme, which kind of happens in various years where you have a certain theme that kind of arises. And um, But in terms of these two films, The Wolf of Wall Street, I just found massively entertaining. Um, I think DiCaprio has maybe done his best performance in this film. But the Scorsese's direction is just relentless here, and it just makes it all work, even though it's three hours, and I was just excited the whole way through. It's just such a fun movie to watch. Spring Breakers is a movie that... It's maybe not as as well acted as Wolf of Wall Street, and maybe not even as well made as Wolf of Wall Street, but it still stuck with me. And similar to what Mark was kind of saying, it just I couldn't I didn't stop thinking about this movie. It kept kind of clicking in my mind throughout the year. And that movie came out what way back in March, I believe. It just stuck with me. I really I really responded to kind of the vibe of this film, not necessarily what was going on in it, but um, I think James James Franco's fantastic. The Kind of the hypnotic score by by Skrillex and was it Cliff Martinez? Is that right? Yep. Um, it just really did a number on me in terms of giving me a movie that had a way to stick in my mind. Given that I see, and given that I see so many films in a year, it seems like something special when a movie can do something like that. So yeah, that's that's my number seven. I had to make a tie there, and that's my last cheat. I swear, I, I <laughs> don't have any more. For that. I, I want to add something to what you <laughs> said about uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. I mean, I would agree with you. I think this is his best performance, and that is really saying something. Yeah. Because DiCaprio is actually one of my favorite actors of all time. I mean, I put him up there with, like, you know, Cary Grant. And, and I mean, there's not as the same type of actor, but he's one of these people that I just think has done. A, 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 a Robert De Niro, there's a few up there, but Jack Nicholson. Anyway, and this is extraordinary. There's a couple scenes where he's addressing the, the group of people that are working for him, and he's got that microphone, and he commands that room, like, and better than, I mean, it was extraordinary. And I was like, it wasn't, I didn't put this in my top ten, because it just, there were certain things about it that, there were, let's put it this way, there were other movies that I liked a little bit better. But this movie, there were things in this film that, are among the best types, like the performance that DiCaprio does. I, I really hope he gets nominated for Best Actor for this because I think he's really extraordinary. He's really strong in the movie. It's it's pretty pretty incredible. Because I, I I agree with you, Mark. I do think he's I, I think he's one of the best actors working today easily. And I think it comes from the fact that he's very you know selective about his movies. You don't see him kind of jumping into random blockbusters every now and then. You see him he makes kind of. Pretty terrible decisions about the movies he takes, and he and, and when he does jump into a random blockbuster, it's Inception. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and he really he does he really he really gives it his all, and I do think yeah I definitely think this is his best work yet with Scorsese in terms of the this is like his fifth collaboration, and I think he's done his best work so far, and yeah he just. I'm, I'm excited to see where he goes from here, given that he just seems to be getting better as he gets older. Well, I think we've gotten to the point, both 
in terms of his acting and in terms of the kind of projects that he chooses, where a Leonardo DiCaprio film by itself is an event. Yeah. Where you know, where you know, I've been at least I've been ranting about this for years. You know, who are the true movie stars, et cetera, et cetera. Without question, both box office and in terms of just sheer artistic showmanship, Leonardo DiCaprio is one of the last classical movie stars we have left. For sure. Um, I would agree. I agree, yeah. There's a scene, I won't spoil it, but there's also that scene where he uh, takes some quaaludes that don't have an effect right away. (laughs) It's one of the best physical comedy scenes I've seen in in many, many years. That physical acting, yeah, that physical acting is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I'll talk more about the film, hint, hint, but yeah, I, I always love when you see an actor who's you know been great in in one or a couple styles. Uh, you sort of reveal that they're capable of a completely different type of acting and the physicality and sort of uh, you know you know humor he brings to that. You know, it's reminiscent of you know some of the stuff like Jim Carrey was doing in the early nineties. Uh, before we move on, once again, because I don't know if Springbreakers is going to get mentioned again, but I do want to single out James Franco in that film. I think James Franco is absolutely fantastic in Springbreakers. I yeah. may agree with Mark that that it's Franco's best work, but regardless, I just love him just jumping into a character like this that's way different than anything he's done before and like really selling it, really going for it, and really kind of taking something by the horns and making it one of the most memorable characters of the year easily. So, yeah, I just... Yeah. It was really, really, that was another big element as to why I really enjoyed Spring Breakers. I really look forward to, you know, 20, 30 years from now, assuming we're all in good health and everything, looking back on what kind of career James Franco has had. Because I imagine it's going to be one for the record books, one way or another. Given all that he does, yeah. 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 Just a fascinating individual. Yeah. (laughs) He wants to be in every page of the yearbook. (laughs) <laughs> it's it's just fun to watch him, you know. He's, he's the he's the Tracy flick of Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> uh, All right, let's go to number six. Is now Scott? What's your number six film? Um, the art house sensation Iron Man three. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! Um, I saw this in a, this year. Saw that in a shoebox theater at the sunset. <laughs> you know, no. <laughs> Um, it was my favorite quote unquote conventional blockbuster of the year. I think it's a, it's a wonderful piece of popcorn entertainment. It is incredibly witty. It has some wonderful action beats. There is a scene involving a, a, I'm sure I'm not spoiling this for anybody, but just in case there is a rescue sequence during the second half of the film. That's one of my favorite action, my favorite action sequence of the year. And what that sequence, at the very least, does is sort of restores the idea that superhero films are supposed to be about superheroes that save people from bad stuff that happens. It's not just about you know killing the bad guy at the end. But anyway, um, that there it also has the, in my opinion, the best plot twist of the year. Again, for the two of you that haven't seen the film, I'm not going to discuss it in too much detail. But I love that not only does the plot twist exist, not only does that plot twist serve to make Iron Man 3 into one of the more subversive criticisms of the quote-unquote war on terror mindset that we've had in the last 10 years. But I love that plot twist exists because Disney was able to hide it. And they were able to hide it by taking what we assume we know about how blockbuster films are marketed and, you know, tricking us, basically. You know, they gave us the scene of Pepper Potts in the Iron Man suit, which is something that turned out to be completely irrelevant to the story. 
Um, and everybody thought that was the big reveal, but no, 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 wait. We're actually hiding that sequence that I shall not discuss. But uh, uh, Robert Downey Jr. is wonderful in the film. It's wonderfully, the dialogue is incredibly clever. It's a Shane Black movie through and through. And I, I love that it ties up the story, even though, you know, in a weird way, okay, yes, we probably will see Tony Stark in the Avengers too. I get that. But I love the fact that it really does end the Iron Man story as we know it. And I just think it is, it is a perfect example, warts and all, of what a blockbuster film should be. I just watched Iron Man 3 again because it was Christmas, and Iron Man 3 is now, of course, a Christmas movie. Yes, it is. And um, I certainly, because I, I had issues with it when I initially saw it, and I've seen it. This is my third time seeing it, and I... There, there are things that still bother me about it. Not necessarily the twist, but other things. But I certainly like it. I think it's a very watchable movie, and I do, I do think it does things much differently than other blockbusters have been able to handle certain aspects that are similar in this kind of genre of film. So I, I, I do respect it for that matter. And I mean, seeing seeing Shane Black involved in you know the biggest movie of the year makes me quite happy. So that's that's a, that's a win right there. It was a well written movie. I, I thought it was enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah, what I do love about it more than anything is the Shane Blackness of it. I mean, he's been a great writer, you know, for 25 years. And it, like Scott said, it is a Shane Black movie, which I was not sure if it would be. I didn't know if Marvel would, you know, water him down, but they didn't. In, in some ways, it's almost like a little side sequel to Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. <laughs> Very good commentary on that movie too. He and a uh, co-writer Drew Goddard, Drew, Drew Goddard, Drew um, that's gonna bug me. Was Drew Pierce? Drew Pierce, thank you. It was Drew, yeah, Drew Pierce. Uh, they have a really kind of good back and forth discussing everything that went to making that movie. So that's a recommend right there. Uh, Maxwell, what is your number? What are we at? Six film of the year. Okay, my number six film of the year is Twelve Years a Slave. Um, I, I, you know, I have a difficult time articulating about this film because of how powerful it is it's not higher up on my list for you know one reason or another little minutia i think it's in some ways based just particularly looking at the title it struggles a tad in, in successfully depicting the passage of time but that like i said is minutia it's really just an incredibly raw powerful overwhelming depiction of this horrible you know events that happened in our country that I still think in many ways we haven't gotten over. And I would argue, you know, and I'm certainly not the first one to argue this, that it's probably the most visceral depiction of slavery we've seen on film. The performances are, you know, exquisite. She would tell Joe for gives my favorite male performance of the year because I think he just completely gives himself over to this film and I think Steve McQueen, whose past two films I really enjoyed, finds this great balance between, um, you know, that sort of artful, raw, you know, what he brought to hunger and um, shame and, you know, a more traditional Hollywood epic. And it, it sort of meets between those two in a way that makes it, I don't know if accessible is the right word, but a film that a lot of people can see and appreciate and perhaps, you know, get a greater understanding of the American human experience through it. It's a, it's a really terrific movie. Uh, Mark, what is your number six film? My number six film is Fruitvale Station, and this was the story about Oscar Grant, who was a, a gentleman that was fatally shot by the BART police um, in Oakland, California. And it's a story about a guy who isn't a saint, 
and he isn't a monster either. But what keeps coming through each vignette in the story is that he's a human being. And I think his existence had a purpose because he had a soul. And that's what this film does. And it's this story about an individual unfulfilled. And it's also a powerful film about an American tragedy. And it's able to weave all of these uh, ideas into a story in just a day in the life of this man. And I just found it really affecting and a very good dramatization about um, about this event. And so that's why it's my number six pick. Dave? Number six pick is something Mark already brought up. It's her with uh, Joaquin Phoenix. And I, I also thought that I was going to go see this one film about possibly technology taking over everyone's life and how everyone's super stuck to their iPhones and digital worlds and whatever else. But... Amy Adams brings a really good point in the film and asks a very interesting question of why not. Um, and then everything kind of turned around for me. And um, I like the way that Spike Jones intersects the film with these little glimpses of Joaquin Phoenix's life with his, uh, his, uh, his, his now ex-wife. And those are just very tender and sweet and um, very well-placed and, it is a very sad performance, and it is a very sad story overall. Um, but, yeah, it kind of just asks the question of, why can't this happen? Or even if it did happen, would you even care? So it's an interesting film. Something I forgot to mention when I was talking about this film that I really liked is I like the vision of the future where it's familiar enough to be recognizable, but still different enough to obviously not be of this time. And some of that has to do with the fashion. Like, they have these high-waisted, belted pants. <laughs> kind of like, and I've had people even see the movie and say, why did people have such weird pants? And I'm like, it's the future. And that is, like, <laughs> that is and the truth is that is what the future is like. It's usually things that are kind of similar to what we're used to, but, but different enough that it doesn't look like this time. And I think that will date the movie yeah. well as it goes into the future because he didn't try to make it, like, you know, really bizarre. It's just kind of like you know and he also he shoots he shoots in la but he also shoots in shanghai and so combining those two cities even though it's supposed to double for la that helps kind of make it seem like oh this sort of feels like la but it really isn't there's some very good world building in this film i agree yes i i love the little snippets of frankly delightful futuristic technology <laughs> you know i mean uh I, I did enjoy this film quite a bit too and there's like ooh, i want that I would like to play with that, and it, 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 it's, it's very creative. My uh, number six film is Edgar Wright's The World's End. Drink up, Les Boo Boo. Boo Boo, what is that? You remember Les Boo Boo? You know, from Mr. Shepherd's classroom, it said on the wall, exit pursued by a bear, you know, from that Shakespeare play? A Winter's Tale. Yeah. What was it called? A Winter's Tale. That's it. And if we needed to make a quick getaway, we'd say, exit pursued by a bear. And then it was, exit pursued by Yogi Bear. And then it was just, let's Yogi and Boo Boo. And then, let's Boo Boo. So you're saying we should go? Yeah, shit, isn't it? I could have eased, I, I easily predicted that this would probably make my top ten at the beginning of the year. Edgar Wright has just found a way to make movies that I respond to very easily. Um, if I had to guess, I'd probably change my rankings around the world and would probably be in higher in the future if I had to reflect back on this year. Um, I've seen The World's End, I think, six times at this point. I love this movie. Um, I think it's a great... Not it's. Beyond just being like very funny, which it is, and being very having all the kind of elements that make it rewatchable, just like Edgar Wright films tend to be, it has a 
it has a great handle on showing how these guys have matured as actors and filmmakers since they began with their show Spaced and moved on to Shaun of the Dead and then Hot Fuzz and, you know, the various projects in between before wrapping up their Cornetto trilogy. And you see that come through in these performances. You see you have Simon Pegg and Nick Frost, of course, and they have this kind of role reversal this time around where Simon, Simon Pegg is more of the loose cannon, Nick Frost is, is the straight man, and you get to see these guys act along with this other these other members of the cast, you see Eddie Marzan and Patty Considine and Martin Freeman. Like it's a, it's a great cast here. They have great chemistry because they're friends, obviously. And it, you can tell that. And it's just a lot of fun, but it's also, a, it, it's a pretty good drama up until kind of 40 minutes in where suddenly, Oh yeah. It's also this crazy genre film that has amazing action sequences. Uh, probably some of the best action sequences I've seen since the raid last year. Um, and it's, it, it just, there's such a beyond this being a comedy and a drama, the action part, it, it shows how how much how far Edgar Wright has come as a director, where he's able to kind of make this weird genre bending film that has emotional resonance, but is also able to be entertaining for both laughing purposes and from action purposes. There's just so many things about this film that I love. There's so many elements of it that that I I can reflect more upon after having seen it multiple times and will continue to find more hidden jokes as I continue to watch it. It's a very layered film and one that I really enjoy watching and yeah, I just really like The World's End quite a bit. Let's move on now. What's our number five? Scott? Uh, my number five is The To-Do Lists, which is my favorite comedy of the year. Um, this one died a quick, sad death in the box office. Fortunately, it was so cheap that it didn't matter. Uh, this is it's Audrey Plaza as a valedictorian who is sexually inexperienced, who decides to spend the summer before college becoming sexually experienced. Um, it's set in the 90s, which I think is interesting because it shows, you know, obviously to a certain extent the film plays around with the idea of you know, sexual double standards, gender double standards, you know, uh, um, you know, slut shaming and what have you. But by being set in the 90s, unfortunately, it shows how little has changed in the last 20 years. But even aside from its politics, it's just really funny. Um, and it does so much right to sort of differentiate, differentiate itself from the traditional romantic comedy. You have the, you know, the stud that she kind of wants to sleep with, who is an idiot, but he's not a villain. You have Bill Hader as basically playing a very similar character, I would say, to Sam Rockwell from The Way, Way Back. But I would argue in this, it's a slightly more relatable version just because he's not as... He's not as, as... as Cool. Cool, yes, thank you, for lack of a more profound word. Um, he's more realistic. And Audrey Plaza is very funny in this. And you have... The relationships are very relatable. They're very down-to-earth. They're very grounded. The relationships she has with her parents, the relationships she has with her sister... The relationship she has with her best friends, you know, quote unquote, the right guy, and even that relationship doesn't go quite where you're expecting it to. It's it's you know, on one hand, you know, I give it brownie points for being you know a very vulgar R-rated sex comedy that happens to be about a woman, because that's unfortunately a very rare thing in this day and age. But even aside from that, it was arguably one of the funniest films of the year and one of the happiest surprises. And one of the little films that I just felt like championing all summer long, even though I knew everyone else was ignoring it. So it's on video. Check it out. It was a very funny film. We saw this together again. Yes. <laughs> it was a funny movie. It really, yeah. Aubrey, Pla Aubrey Plaza, the um, the Tracy flick of, of 730 sex comedies. 
I was happy to have seen it. Abe, what were you saying? I uh, just said, Scott, you sold me. Oh, my dear. Great cast in that movie. A lot of people, a lot of funny people. I think it's also directed by Bill Hader's actual His wife, wife yes. Yep. Maggie Carey. And it's, I guess, semi-autobiographical. The writing of it. <laughs> it makes me want to see him more now. There you go. <laughs> One ticket sold. Um, <laughs> Maxwell, what is your number five film of the year? Okay, my number five film of the year is The Wolf of Wall Street. Um, you know, this movie has obviously been brought up a lot already. Um, I think it's just a, an absolutely brilliant portrait of American excess. It's hilarious, ostentatious. The performances, as we have discussed, are great. But even more than that, I think bubbling not so subtly under the surface is this really angry indictment of capitalism in this country and the way that we, we us, we being outsiders, um, perceive these sort of, uh, you know, alpha male frat boy types who work on Wall Street. Um, I, I think it was just great. And what's so wonderful about it to me is that at 71 years old, Scorsese brings more energy and, and virtuoso filmmaking and passion to it than, you know, directors a third of his age. Um, I think it's arguably his best film since Goodfellas and deserves to be um, discussed in, in the same breath as that movie. Um, it just, it's, I think it's terrific. And again, DiCaprio, you know, probably his best work ever. I can't wait to see what he does next. Mark, what is your number five film of the year? That would be American Hustle. Tommy, this is a nice DJ Steve who would salute Thank you, Rocco. Thank you, Rocco. I I believe that you should treat people the way that you want to be treated. Didn't Jesus say that or something? Amen. I think also always take a favor over money. I think Jesus said that as well. I don't know if he said the second one, but you might have said the first one. <laughs> I chip them moving furniture. It's my new obsession. Moving, redecorating. It's, it makes me feel better, like exercise. But oh, there's yeah. this but there's this top coat that you can only get from Switzerland, and I don't know what I'm going to do because I'm running out of it, but I love the oh, smell of it. Irvin, I can't get enough of it. That would be amazing. There's something, if it's the top coat, it's like perfumey, but there's also something rotten. And I know that sounds crazy, but yeah. I can't get enough of it. Like, smell it, it's true. Dolly, historically, <laughs> yeah, no, the best perfumes in the world, they're all laced it's with true. something nasty. Stop, and stop, it, 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 is true. True. it is true, it is true. Irving true. loves them. Oh my you can't God. get enough of that smell. Carmine. Carmine, smell her nails. Sweet and sour. Smell her nails. Rotten and delicious. Yeah. It smells, smells like flowers. Flowers, but with garbage. Well, and like, like sour. Yeah. Flowers. <laughs> you know what that is for me? It's coriander for me. Oh, it's but Irving loves that he can't get enough. That's what hooks you. Mm. He always comes back for it. Yeah. This was the story about the FBI investigation to target corrupt public officials, and it was called Abscam. And the subject sounds really dry. And what director David O. Russell does is he takes this sort of potentially dry subject and he makes it endlessly entertaining. And I will say that this is probably my favorite ensemble cast of the year. I think all, f uh, well, five actors basically um, really work well together. And it's, you know, the, the movie starts out with some of this actually happened. And it's it's sort of a comedy, and then it's it's also a drama. I mean, it's right from the start. He's letting you know that this is going to be sort of a little bit humorous, and it's 
it combines the fashions and the music of the 70s in kind of a, I mean, it's almost like to the 10th power. It's sort of like that, but then I think he really kind of amps it up in a way that is humorous, but then also kind of exciting. And uh, David O. Russell, you know, he's got quite a few films under his belt now. He really is a confident filmmaker, and he masterfully tells the story. It's quite dazzling. And I was just kind of like sitting back and just enjoying just sort of the spectacle of this whole thing. And, um, you know, I think it, 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 he does a good job of he just knows how to tell a story. And definitely there have been a lot of comparisons to Martin Scorsese, and those are all valid. I mean, I think this movie definitely uses Martin Scorsese's blueprint as a reference point. But I think he also does make the production his own, and uh, and I, I think it's an extraordinary film. I have a question, um, and it's just re- kind of in regards to the regard this film is having. I like this film quite a bit. I like American Hustle. I think it's a lot of. I think it's very entertaining. I think the actor is very good in it. But where do you think that the? I'm sure you're aware that this there seems to be like a weird amount of like hate coming towards its way, and I'm along with Wolf of Wall Street for that matter too. But I was curious, where do you think that's coming from with regards to American Hustle? Is, is, I, uh, oh, I I think well part of it is I don't know why, but it's sort of become this Wolf of Wall Street versus American Hustle, and I don't know why it has to be one or the other. I think they're both you know valid films. Um, for different reasons. But I think it's actually just the nature of, I mean, I think any film that gets a certain amount of praise is also going to have a backlash. And I mean, Gravity has this also. It's, it's almost like any film that people start to like, then there's also a group of detractors for it. So I don't know if that's really a uniquely American hustle, uh, uh, you know, uh, thing. I know what you're saying because I see that with I saw that with Gravity and I saw that with a couple other movies that are we've mentioned already, but uh, just because I just I keep seeing it for Hustle recently, and it's just I'm curious. I think, I think I understand the Wolf of Wall Street hate a little bit. I mean, obviously I love the movie, but the hate I'm seeing uh, or dislike or dissent directed at Wolf of Wall Street is at least from a content perspective. People taking issue with what the film deals with. American Hustle, kind of like what Mark was saying, seems to be a case of every year there's one or two or maybe three movies that, you know, gets a lot of critical praise and ends up being, you know, in the awards conversation that this certain sect of, you know, I, I don't want to disparage them too much, high or seemingly highbrow, you know, film buffs that, that you know, hate against it because they feel it, it aims squarely down the middle. I mean, films like The Artist and The King's Speech, uh, Silver Linings Playbook last year, for whatever reason, because they're praised so much, people, these people feel the need to attack them, which doesn't really, you know, benefit you know, anybody. I, it, and that helps me explain a little bit more about it. I think the film isn't a dark film. And I don't think it's, um, I don't think it's highbrow. And I don't think it has to be highbrow. I think, I mean, I've got Hunger Games on as my number eight pick so i mean I, I just go to movies because you know if i'm gonna like a movie i'm gonna do it because it's enjoyable and it doesn't have to reinvent the wheel and i think maybe that's what people were expecting from american hustle that he would like come out with some grand statement and i don't think it's that but i think what it does it does really well i mean it was one of the most entertaining films i saw this year and that's why it's in my top 10 and it's not just entertaining it's also the way that he recreates the era and there's a lot of attention to detail. Plus, it's got five performances that, I mean, there. I don't know what the Academy Awards are going to hold, but there has been talk that 
every one of these people could be nominated, that's probably not going to happen. Renner's going to get left in the dust, which is a yes, because I think Renner's very good in the movie. <laughs> but I mean, also, it already happened with uh, Silver Linings Playbook. He was the first film in whatever thirty years to get all four, you know, nominations and, and all four acting categories. That would be, unpre- I mean, it it's all, was already unprecedented for it to happen again. Would be extraordinary, but it could happen because that's how good the film is. And then, of course, again. People have this reaction like, oh, well, this movie is just a silly popcorn film or it doesn't, you know, it doesn't make some grand statement or it isn't dark. Well, I don't think it has to be. So I think part of it is and I I don't necessarily agree with the sentiment. People American Hustle is basically exactly exactly what you expected it to be going in. You know, it, it doesn't have a ton of narrative surprises. You're right. It's not this grand epic statement on, you know, America in the 70s and what it means today or anything like that. It's just a well-acted character romp. And I think that's okay. But I do think that that's where some of the backlash is coming from, right or wrong, and I would argue wrong, where you have people wondering, well, is that it? Like, oh, it's just these characters doing a scam, which is exactly what the previews, you know, give you. As opposed to something like Gravity, which was arguably a surprise a Wolf of Wall Street, which was somewhat of a surprise. Uh, for better or worse, American Hustle is what you see is what you get. And I don't think it's a bad thing. Um, but I do think that's one of the problems that you have with the Oscar season is that if a film doesn't sort of drop a bomb on the industry during its first screening, it's not even a matter of it, is it good or bad? Is it, oh, well, that's not the great Oscar game changer we were hoping for. And that somehow translates into it's a bad film. I think um, there's... Okay, I'm sorry. No, no, that's okay. I was just saying, I think there's a sort of prevailing feeling that, especially at the end of the year, that films have to mean something. Yes. You know, you know, why is, I, I argue, and I think many of you would too, is that an entertaining film is enough. I mean, that's ultimately what we go to the movies for, is to be entertained. Yes, it's great when a film has, you know, is uh, thoughtful or, or brings meaning or drops a bomb, like Scott says, but sometimes American Hustle, I didn't, you know, it's not my top ten, but it's really enjoyable. And that's enough. Oh, I do think it's actually worth pointing out, and and over the last several years, how David O. Russell has become basically a preeminent mainstream, you know, main you know director of mainstream, incredibly successful dramas. You know, yeah. the once endangered species, and yes, most of his films do come out during the Oscar season, but he's got a batting average. You know, this film's about to top 100 million. The Fighter almost did. Uh, Silver Lines Playbook was way over 100 million. You throw in Three Kings from 1999, and he's got a record on par with anyone other than maybe Tyler Perry in terms of consistency for character dramas. Obviously, his films are better, but that's another argument. Um, I, I, I think it's kind of amazing that the guy that did, you know, I Heart Hucklebees has now become one of the most mainstream accessible, the, you know, one of the biggest makers of mainstream accessible highbrow pictures. No, I hear you. Yeah, so I want to throw that question out there, and I got a good response. So thank you, um, Abe. <laughs> what is your number five film? Number five is a film you've already talked about as well. It's Nebraska. I really like this film a lot. I think that it really focuses on these characters, um, even more so because it's black and white, so you can't really, I guess, get your eyes away from anything else. It's also very interesting that the cinematographer chooses to show these sunrises uh, in Nebraska, and it's all just black and white. So I guess you have to take your your best imagination and paint something there. But I really like the performances from Booster Dern and Will Forte and also uh, 
his wife, I can't June Squibb. June Squibb, yeah. I want to say. Uh, yeah. And uh, again, as I mentioned with Aaron before in the past, it's just there's this one newspaper person in the town, and she gives a very interesting performance. I, I, I liked her performance a lot. Um, but yeah, I, I really recommend this film. And it's subtly funny in, in a lot of different ways, too. And you'd say, like, that little performance, that goes a long way for just speaking for a lot of the kind of small character performances throughout this film, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Dad. Dad. Leave me alone. Going to Lincoln is the last thing I do. I don't care what you people think. Listen to me. You didn't win anything. It's a complete scam. So you got to stop this, okay? I'm running out of time. You didn't have a suitcase. I'm not staying there. Dad, I can't let you go. It's none of your business. Yes, it is. I'm your son. Well, then why don't you take me? You can't just drop everything and drive to Lincoln, Nebraska. Oh, what else you got going on? All right. Uh, my number five film is 12 Years a Slave. Um, w- would this film be number one if it had teeth that looked like people in that time and maybe Brad Pitt was played by somebody different, perhaps? Um, <laughs> That's what's holding you back from being number one? That, Clean that, that, teeth? May, may, maybe, that, maybe that pushed you down four That's slots. Maybe that porn pushed you down four slots. Maybe it did. <laughs> but regardless, I do think it's an absolutely fantastic film. I do think it has such a strong presence in terms of kind of being being one of those films that's quote unquote important. Um, and like you know, you had you have to see it. It it really stands out for just providing such a, as Maxwell said, kind of a definitive view on slavery in film. Certainly the most, one of the most intense depictions that I've seen. And what I think really makes it hold up grander for me and not just because not just like the fact that it's telling the story is that i think it's a very watchable film which is a weird thing to say but you know you get a lot of these kind of films that are you know based on historical record or you know have a a certain visceral quality to them that make them films that you don't necessarily want to see again and abe and i we've talked about this before we talked we went uh, on the previous show episode actually uh, just kind of movies that you would maybe hold up as classics, but maybe not ones that you necessarily want to ever see like all that much. Like Schindler's List is like something like that, where I don't, I don't necessarily feel like that's a film I need to watch again and again. I don't need to necessarily watch Twelve Years a Slave again and again. But with that said, I've seen it twice at this point, and I think it has to do with kind of Steve McQueen's direction of the film and how he portrays what's going on here. And there's something to his style of filmmaking, the cinematography involved, and performances where I can kind of almost detach myself from the amount of violence that's on screen. And it is really graphic violence, but I'm able to kind of allow myself to dig into what else is going on in this film and kind of get into these performances and get into how John Ridley's adapted this book and made a, a screenplay that really speaks to what, what slavery was and wh- where we are now as a society and how we look back on this kind of thing. It has a lot of... It has a very interesting way of presenting this story and making you kind of put putting you right there and watching it. Like it's just an intense film to watch, but it's one that really got to me and stuck with me. And 
certainly won't be forgotten by me. So yeah, Twelve Years a Slave, it's a fantastic film, and certainly. And if I, if regardless of it being my number five or whatever, if it if it if it re, if it just takes in a lot of awards and award season, I I would be quite happy for it, just because I'm very happy for the for the acclaim that McQueen's getting, who whose films Hunger and Shame I really liked, and this film is his best of those, and. Chiwetelji for an actor that I've liked for quite a while. I'm very glad to see him finally getting a lot more notoriety. Like it's just all these things add up to just being a great film for me. Um, before I get to number fours for all of us, I'm gonna read a couple more. Uh, or, Abe, do you want to read a few of these on the the field feedback here? Uh, so more of the some of the, the listener and also guest folks who couldn't be on the show, they sent us some some top fives, I guess. And uh, next is Brandon. Brandon has Maniac, Inside Loon Davis. Wolf of Wall Street, The World's End, and Gravity in his top five. Friend of the show, Gerard, also has uh, The World's End, American Hustle, Rush, Her, and The Wolf of Wall Street. Marcus has Fruitvale Station, The Wolf of Wall Street, 12 Years a Slave, Inside Loon Davis, The Place Beyond the Pines. And for the last one for this segment, we'll have Jose. Jose wrote Stories We Tell, uh, followed closely by Before Midnight, and it blew his mind. Nice picks, all you guys. Jose, Stories We Tell, number one film. All right, and Marcus stuck to his. I believe he made that claim like very early on. The place beyond the pines would be like his number, his favorite movie of the year, and it, it stayed that way. So, way to stick to your guns, I guess, Marcus. Good job. <laughs> it's man of his word. He, he was a really big fan of the Lone Ranger, actually. He was, yeah. And uh, what was the other one? There was another one too, where he it seemed like he really responded to it more than anyone else. Um, Oogie loves. Oogie loves. <laughs> Ah, that was 2012's. <laughs> that was his pick for last year. Oh, sorry. <laughs> it's so perfect because he's not here to defend himself. But yeah, no, yeah, he did He did stick by Lone Ranger, and I do think there's a lot of watchable elements in that movie. I, Maxwell, I believe you're a fan of Lone Ranger. I would probably pick it as my, I don't necessarily like the word, but most underrated film of the year, yeah. As I, I did. I certainly say that, yeah. It's... No, it, I did do an underrated list, and that was the top one. Yeah, uh, I, I... I think it got a lot of misguided or misappropriated hate on. Like, I know what, what terrible movies look like, and The Lone Ranger is just not one of those. It's maybe excessive. It maybe has it, things that don't work, but it certainly has more ambition than a lot of films that I've seen this year, good or bad. You know, it's it's easy to pick on the biggest guy at the school, especially one that, you know, financially fails, so to speak. Yeah. All right, all right, all right. We, all right, we're we're um we're cutting this half of the podcast off here. It's going very long, and we figured why not make this a two-parter? So that's what we're gonna do. Indeed, we're gonna do that, and we're also gonna read some more of our guest top fives in the second half coming up soon. Indeed, and we'll have plenty of honorable mentions as well as the number one picks for 2013. So stay tuned. In the meantime, you can find all the other episodes about now, Theron and Abe on iTunes and at Stitcher. As well as at hhwlod.com, you can find our show there along with the other shows like the Walking Dead TV podcast, the Ichabod Cranecast, and other fun shows like that about games and comics and TV and fun stuff. Listen to us over at outnow.podomatic.com as well as youtube.com slash outnowpodcast. Feel free to send us an email at outnowpodcast at gmail.com. And also interact with us at facebook.com slash outnowpodcast and twitter.com slash outnow underscore podcast. And of course, outnowpodcast at tumblr.com. And of course, there is our voicemail line. 972-798-3830. Feel free to leave us a voicemail for the show. But yeah, that's going to do it for this half of our top 10 of 2013 episodes. So stay tuned, because in a couple days from now, you will hear the second half of that episode. But until next time, so long. And goodbye. Bye. Bye. Everything rides on tonight. Even if I've got three strikes, I'm going to go for it. This moment.
aside from the emotional. <laughs> Hello. Sorry. Everybody okay? <laughs> I'm not, that Scott did that. <laughs> did I do that? I'm like, no, what's that, was, that, Scott? That was Maxwell. No, no, you, no Scott, oh. you did not make a dog yeah. noise just there. <laughs> that was terrifying. It's because it worked out perfectly. He, he said, from, aside from the occasional, exactly. and then I was like, dog bark? <laughs> <laughs> I apologize. No, no, that's okay. Um, anyway. Uh, <laughs> if we have time, random digression... I watched Man of Steel for the second time a couple weeks ago on Blu-ray, yeah. and my wife was playing Candy Crush while we were watching it because she wasn't that interested. And I swear, during every quote-unquote sad, dramatic moment, if you ever play Candy Crush, it's a certain song when you lose the game. It's sort of, <laughs> da-da-doom, doom, doom, doom. And it was perfectly timed on cue. But anyway. Um, did it make the movie better? <laughs> yes, it did. Did it? Without, okay. Absolutely. I'll have to remember um, that then. Um, but anyway. Um, 